S18A0100, Ricky Lee Carr versus the state, Amber Connell for appellant, Clayton Fuller for appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the court, may it please the court. My name is Amber Cannell, and I represent the appellate Ricky Carr in this case. Ricky Carr is a young man with mild to moderate mental retardation. McConnell, if you might get just a little bit closer to that microphone. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And Mr. Carr was charged with serious violent offenses. Subsequently, he was evaluated by Dr. Sam Perry with the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. Dr. Perry determined that Mr. Carr was incompetent and found that because of his low intellectual functioning, it was unlikely that he could be restored to competency. Dr. Perry further provided that any attempt to restore Mr. Carr to competency should be done in an outpatient setting. What Dr. Perry evaluation on how much examination and and was that done at the jail, outpatient? It was done outpatient in defense counsel's office. Mr. Carr came in to be evaluated by Dr. Perry. He evaluated, interviewed him, spoke with him, spoke with his mother, defense counsel. He reviewed medical records, school records, and reviewed a prior determination of incompetency of Mr. Carr and making that determination. After the- um, So he, how much time did he spend with uh, your client? Do you have any idea? Was it one day, one day or- oh, no, it was one occasion. Okay. There was information um, provided in the proffer that Mr. Dr. Perry requested additional time, but as moving forward under 177.130, that was not permitted. Due to the language in 177.130 subsection C, the court found Mr. Carr incompetent, and because of his incompetency, submitted him to the Catoosa County Jail, subsequently to the state hospital. The court felt that the language in 177.130 subsection C, requiring physical custody of the accused to be committed, that that meant that Mr. Carr had to go into the, the local jail. But despite the fact that it was unlikely that Mr. Carr would be restored, and despite the recommendations from Dr. Perry that he have any attempts on an outpatient basis, Mr. Carr was detained without a hearing to provide in, further information to ensure that this commitment furthered the purpose. The essential issue we're asking here today is whether the trial court is constitutionally required to hold a hearing prior to commitment to determine the accused's restorability and need for inpatient hospitalization prior to sending that individual to the jail and to the state hospital. We believe the answer to that question is yes, and that OCGA 177-130 is unconstitutional, facially as and it was applied to Mr. Carr. The automatic confinement to the jail and to the state hospital deprived Mr. Carr of his fundamental right of due process without that hearing. I'd like to move forward with the due process argument first. Um, any pretrial detention implicates a liberty interest and mandates due process. The commitment to the state hospital for any purpose also constitutes a significant further deprivation of liberty. So Mr. Carr's liberty was deprived when he was committed to the county jail as well as to the state hospital. And the trial court did this under the, the belief that it had to follow the mandatory language in 177-130. However, we know that just because a state law exists authorizing commitment, that does not mean that the law and the commitment complies with the mandates of due process. 
and a minimum due process provides the right to be or an opportunity to be heard and notice. What we have in 177-130 is a lack of time limits for those who are confined. And no way does it limit any amount of time that the individual spends in confinement at a county jail prior to going to a state hospital, nor does it expressly limit the time at the state hospital. 177-130 subsection C only limits the time that the department can conduct an evaluation. It has 90 days once the individual is at the actual custody of the hospital to evaluate the individual and determine whether or not it is likely they can attain competency in the foreseeable future. So is this a facial challenge? It is, statute? Your Honor. It is facial and as applied to Mr. Carr. Is it not capable of being applied in a constitutional manner if things happen quickly? Not as provided by the statute. The statute doesn't have a limitation on it, and without that, it's arbitrary and indefinite. We have Jackson versus Indiana through the United States Supreme Court, which found that due process and equal protection was violated through the Indiana competency statute because it had an indefinite time frame on which that individual was committed. And likewise, seven, Don't seven, we, could we interpret the statute? I mean, it does say 90 days to do the evaluation once he's at the hospital. Why couldn't we interpret the statute to require that getting him to and from the hospital be done in a reasonable time? And if that time, the federal statute, which has been upheld many times, says basically four months is not a, is not a due process violation. We've got three months plus whatever time getting there and getting back. If that were interpreted to be no more than four months, would that be constitutional? I don't believe so. I think part of the problem comes with the mandatory commitment in the jail prior to commitment in the state hospital. If you look at the cases from Strong or DeLasta, interpreting 4241 of the federal constitution competency statute, those individuals were allowed to remain on their pre-commitment bond status, whether they were, one was in an inpatient hospital and one was remaining out. OCGA 177130 does not provide this opportunity. It has language determining the physical custody as well as actual custody. Right. Th those two cases mention that fact of the case. I don't think he, at least one of those defendants was not a violent offender, right? So charged with a fraud offense? That may be accurate. I know. But, but there are other federal cases that have not relied on that fact. They've just said under Jackson, four months is not an unreasonable time. Correct. If our statute were understood, or at least as applied to your client or any other individual, was only four months or less, what would the problem be? Well, there's problems not only with the indefinite time frame that's provided from 177-130, because it also does not prohibit the um, commitment hospital from keeping the individual after the evaluation. Again, again, if applied to an individual or a set of individuals, the overall time were less than four months. If the trial court had written in the order, I direct that he be transported post haste to the hospital and return post haste, the total amount of time not ex to exceed uh, 120 days. Would that be a due process violation? That may not address the time limit violation. Um, that might seek to help aid that. However, we still have a purpose violation because due process also requires that the nature of the commitment bear a reasonable um, relationship to the purpose for which the individual is committed. OCGA 177-130 in subsection C provides <coughs> that outpatient evaluations can be conducted. This is significant and a distinction from the federal statute because what it allows us to know is that the Georgia legislators have found that an outpatient evaluation can provide the necessary information to the department to conduct their evaluation.
that they can determine whether or not an individual can attain competency. Why can't we also conclude that the Georgia General Assembly thought that an outpatient scenario was not available for a violent offender as opposed to a nonviolent offender? Because the distinction here, we have an individual who has pending criminal charges, and without further evidence, we have no finding of dangerousness. That was um, provided in Jackson versus Indiana by the United States Supreme Court, that pending criminal charges are insufficient for a finding of dangerousness. Well, finding of dangerousness, that would be the equivalent of an indefinite confinement, right? That was the situation in Jackson. Did Jackson say that you, you couldn't make a finding based on criminal charges that would result in a time limited, like four months? It appeared under the due process evaluation of Jackson, the biggest concern was related to the time limit. It did mention that it implied a finding of dangerousness that had not occurred on the trial level. Right. So uh, many of the federal cases involve nonviolent offenders, and they uphold as not being a violation of due process, keeping somebody for evaluation for up to four months, even with a nonviolent offense. Are you saying that a legislature could not say, well, we'll give a break to people who are not violent, we'll let that happen in the community, but for violent people, we have greater concerns. That's for violent charges. That's not a rational distinction? I think that begs the purpose of what's the purpose of commitment. If we're determining that dangerousness is to be evaluated, a hearing should be held. If we're determining that should be the department's evaluation of an individual, the nature of the charges has no bearing on the department and their ability to determine whether or not a person can attain competency. That's a determination of their mental illness, their likelihood of being restored, if they understand the proceedings, if they can assist their attorney. It has no bearing on the nature of the charges because the nature of the charges um, imply the dangerousness finding, a hearing should be held to determine whether or not that commitment has been arbitrarily imposed. I would like to move forward with my equal protection argument because in Jackson versus Indiana, the, that the Supreme Court of the United States also found that the Indiana competency statute also violated equal protection because it provided a more lenient commitment standard and a more strict standard for release for those who were found incompetent with pending charges. Now we just assess that argument under the rational basis standard, right? There's no heightened scrutiny. I believe it would en encompass strict scrutiny because what we have is the deprivation of liberty and that's a fundamental right. Being deprived of um, one's freedom, having to go into the county jail, as well as having to go to the hospital. Equal protection? Typically, our level of scrutiny is based on the, the nature of the classification that's made, right? Determining that what we are um, dealing with, and because what we're dealing with here is a fundamental right, that's why I believe strict scrutiny applies. And that the, a higher standard is required. And Jackson, the court found um, that in evaluating the equal protection analysis, we also must consider the civil commitment criteria. And I would move further that we should also consider the criteria for the insanity equity, those who are sought to be forcibly medicated, and those whose bonds are being revoked. Because in each of those situations, we have greater procedural safeguards that are afforded to those than we do to those who are found to be incompetent with pending charges. In a civil commitment, the individual is entitled to a full and fair hearing within 10 to 15 days of a petition filing for inpatient commitment. And then a judge must have a hearing and determine whether or not that individual is mentally ill and whether or not they present a substantial risk of imminent harm to themselves or others. In, or in so all those settings, putting aside medicating for trial, which doesn't seem very analogous at all, in, in, in the other two settings, insanity and civil commitment, does the result of the commitment result in indefinite confinement? 
No, they or at least much longer than uh, three months or four months? It can exceed longer than that. It depends on the particular circumstances. There are review periods and um, the court may consider other information. There can be petitions filed by the department that allow the reconsideration of the commitment. And so in civil commitment, we have to have a hearing to discuss not only the mental illness, but the harm or inability to care for someone. And lastly, that that person is in need of involuntary care, not just that they need care, but that must be involuntary inpatient treatment. Now, subsection A6 of OCGA 177-130 also provides that we should consider inpatient in the same light that we do the mental health code. It refers to it specifically. Um, but yet we have no opportunity to evaluate this criteria. Additionally, there's the, the insanity equity. That's a person who's been found not guilty by reason of insanity. They've been found to commit the acts related to a crime, but that they don't possess the requisite intent because of their mental illness. From a, that verdict, the court um, commits them to a hospital for 30 days where the department conducts an evaluation. The evaluation in that setting is whether the person is mentally ill and in need of involuntary treatment or developmentally disabled and a substantial risk of imminent harm to themselves. The court can discharge the individual who's been found not guilty by reason of insanity without a hearing. However, if it does not, it must have a hearing within 30 days. So in the situation for someone who has been an insanity acquittee, they have a much shorter timeline than the individual who is found to be incompetent. The pending criminal charges cannot justify a greater, um, a different treatment than those who have been convicted. And I would like to discuss the cell test and those who are forcibly medicated, because the purpose of forcible medication is to attempt to restore the individual to allow them to be brought to trial. Much like the state may have an interest in seeking a person to be committed to a hospital, is to seek that they can be brought to trial. In that situation, the United States Supreme Court held that a four-factor test must be found prior to committing the individual to the state hospital. They must find that there's an important governmental interest. Well, that's not right. I mean. The individual in cell and in other cases are in custody. The question was, can you stick a needle in them? That's correct, Judge. I misstated that. It is correct that it's prior to forcibly medicating them, um, that they must make this decision. So before taking their liberty away, and in the situation of cell, the liberty is unwanted medical treatment. The issue we have present with Mr. Carr is being confined in a jail and being confined in a state hospital. And in cell, they must determine the important governmental interest, that the medication will significantly further that governmental interest, that medication is necessary and the least intrusive means to accomplish that interest, and as well that the medication is in the defendant's best interest. We have no similar procedural safeguards, despite the fact that in a case when someone has been found incompetent, we are seeking to have them restored to competency. Lastly, there's a situation of an individual who's been revoked on bond. All individuals who are charged with violent felony crimes have the right to have a bond hearing and a bond set in their case if appropriate. And a judge cannot revoke their bond without a hearing to make a determination that the bond conditions have been violated. The, unlike Mr. Carr, the finding of competency is what placed him from being out, in out on bond to in custody. The finding of incompetence did that. There was, the state conceded that there was no violation of the bond condition terms, yet the judge felt because of the mandatory language of 177-130 that Mr. Carr had to be placed in a county jail before being committed to the state hospital. We provide these procedural safeguards in all these other situations that we do not provide to those who have been found incompetent. And I believe that we should without, to preserve equal protection. Lastly, I would like to briefly address the issue of timeliness. And that is whether or not this issue has been 
um, raised at the first opportunity. Constitutional challenges have to be raised at the first opportunity, and we believe that this was because it was raised in conjunction with the competency hearing, because it wasn't until an incompetency finding that the individual could be confined pursuant to 177-130, subsection C. We believe the Woods case is most helpful in it because it raises a timely constitutional challenge to a sentencing statute after verdict. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Could I ask you oh. just one? What is the status of your client? Presently in the state hospital. So, so your notice of appeal was not treated as superseding the court's order, and and they proceeded with the evaluation. They had they did evaluate him. They've made um, their findings, but we cannot proceed any further because of the position of this case. And do you know how long it took them to get him to the state hospital? I believe in the ballpark of six weeks, but I could be mistaken on that. It was more than a month, less, I believe less than two, but I'm not confident. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Fellow. May it please the court. Chief Justice Hines, justices of the Supreme Court, I appreciate your patience because I know this morning must be running long for you guys. And I want to say thank you to Ms. Cannell for uh, being willing to come before the Supreme Court because this is a large accomplishment for a kid from White County to be in this court. And I'm excited to be here and speak to you about this case. OCG 177-130 represents a time-tested statutory scheme that maintains protections for those who are deemed incompetent to stay in trial for the interests of the state, and as well as the victims of the state. The greatest um, authority that the state will present to the court today will start at Florescu versus State, which is 276 Georgia App 264. The facts of that case are uh, a little bit strange in the sense that in that, that case, the defendant was actually after conviction, conviction asking to um, challenging the court in the sense that they didn't go back initially before the trial and look at the incompetency of that defendant involved in that case. But there is language within the, the Court of Appeals of that case that's essentially saying, interpreting this statute, 177-130, it is mandatory that a defendant that is found incompetent is to be turned over to the, um, and it's a difficult, organization to say, so I'm going to say the abbreviation, the DBHDD. That language isn't challenged, and essentially what the, um, what Ms. Cannell and her client, Mr. Carr, are trying to do is bring a new challenge to this case and to this statute, and as the court pointed out that the federal authority on this case, specifically dealing with the due process questions that were raised by appellant, are that Every time a court has faced this issue, every time a court has faced this ish issue, they say there's no due process violation. Although the federal statute has a pretty strict no more than four months uh, for the whole process to happen, and if, it, if the hospital evaluates them quicker than four months, they have to <coughs> truncate the process. Georgia just says three months at the hospital, but could take forever getting there or getting back. Yes, sir, and that, that may be an issue that the legislature would want to take up, but I think what the federal case law is saying is that you start to get really concerned about this issue from a due process standpoint. Um, once the, once the um, 
commitment seems to be indefinite. And that certainly isn't the, the case at this point. This certainly isn't the facts in the case. And um, when I refer to OCGEA 177-130 as a time-tested um, uh, statutory scheme, those types of challenges have not been presented. So I think when you look at the facts on the ground with county jails, they are looking to get their, their people out of the jail as quickly as they can. How long did it take to get this person to a state hospital? Sir, it would take me just a, a couple of minutes to run through my notes. I don't remember off the top of my head the exact date. Um, so I'd have to go back Quick and look as possible, it. meaning two, three days or no, sir, several no. weeks? I, I think it took um, some weeks to get them down there. That, and I think, that doesn't sound like as quick as possible. Well, I, I think, and Your Honor, if I could address that issue specifically, I think when you look at the federal statute, most federal courts are in a larger city like Atlanta or some other city that would probably have these types of resources close by. When you're in a rural circuit like I am at the Lookout Mountain Judicial Circuit, it may be more of a challenge because a sheriff has to deal with an officer that has to drive someone a long distance. There's a lot of planning that has to go involved in it. And so to keep... Um, well, to your point, the timing doesn't have so much to do with how quickly the sheriff's deputy can transport that defendant. It has to do a lot of times with how many beds are available, right? That's correct. And they're, whether, they're, whether there's place whether there's a place at the hospital for the defendant and whether there's a doctor available to evaluate the defendant in a timely fashion, correct? Yes, Your Honor. Well, um, there are but none of that makes, it, it's very difficult to get an arrested defendant in some places a probable cause hearing within 48 hours. But if you don't do it, that's a constitutional violation, even if all the sheriff's deputies are home for the weekend. So, so what's the limit on how long it can take? I don't think that's uh, specifically been spelled out. As long as the statutory scheme is saying that this, the, the intent of the statute is that this is not, uh, that this confinement is indefinite, then it passes constitutional measure. The, the scheme, uh, on its face, the scheme is indefinite. It doesn't set any time limit on the amount of time getting them to the hospital or getting them back. So on its face, the statute says three months at the hospital and Whenever you get back to court, could be 40 years, um, we'll proceed, right? So is, would that be constitutional? No, Your Honor, I, I don't think that would be constitutional, and I don't think that's the statutory scheme that the legislature has put in place, and I don't think uh, that's how any executive officers who would be implementing... Okay, so how much time would be too much for, for an, this individual defendant? Well, I think there's a separate issue as to a recommendation that would come from the medical professionals about how much time this individual may need to be restored to competency, which is an issue, which is important. With That's it. a separate issue. I mean, sure. you, you acknowledge that at the end of this initial evaluation, you got to come back to court with the evaluation done by the hospital, and then the court has a hearing, right? That's correct. Yes, Your Honor. But before the hearing, based purely on the preliminary finding of incompetency, the defendant, this defendant who's out on bond, gets locked up and has its, his liberty entirely deprived for three months plus, under the statute, an indefinite amount of time. On its face, if we interpreted it that way, would that be constitutional? I believe the, the viewpoint that there is a 90-day requirement to receive a report that then kicks in a requirement for the trial court to act on, on, on that report, what the re recommendations may be. If the recommendation may be, hey, with this individual, we, 
Sorry, I think it looks no, like No, I you. mean, I get that. That's what happens after the three months and after the defendant shows back up in the jurisdiction, right? Under the statute, there is no time limit on that. So it could take, if everyone just drops the ball, the defendant takes three months to get to the hospital, is there no more than 90 days, gets evaluated, and then it takes six months to get him back because the jail doesn't really want to have this incompetent defendant in their jail. Would that be constitutional? Um, a a six-month time period between the... Well, nine the months, three months before, six months on the end, three months while they're being evaluated. That'd be a year. Yes, sir. I, I think the issue would always be um, whether the statutory scheme interprets or attempted to put in place not an indefinite, not locking them away and throwing the key. No one would interpret 177-130 placing an individual into the uh, custody of the department and saying this person is going to be there forever. Okay, now, on its face, it's three months for the evaluation. What limits that three months in terms of the time it takes from the defendant leaving the, the court who says I'm finding you incompetent, committing you to the department, to the time the court has another hearing. I, Does the Constitution limit that amount of time? The, the, Constitution, the Constitution certainly does limit okay, and, that. And but what is that limit? Because it, it's, it's not three months. Yes, sir. So what is the limit? What limit do we have to read in or understand the statute? I, I don't know that if that's ever been specifically spelled out, that there's some sort of magical time limit that would violate the constitutional order or due process. I think the, the issue is that once that report would come back, if the facts on the ground said that we need more time to restore this, this person to competency, or if they can never be restored to competency, then you start moving throughout different, different portions and paragraphs of that of 177-130. Are you saying that we would deal with that type of question on an as-applied basis rather than providing a prospective limit facially speaking to the statute? Is that what you're arguing? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I think that would be a better approach. Uh, but as far as setting out a specific timeline, I, I, don't, I don't think that's ever been done within our case law. And I think essentially what the federal case law is saying and the Supreme Court case law um, is essentially saying, look, if, if, you're throwing, if you're taking the key and throwing it away and never thinking about this individual, that's when you're getting in trouble. But as long as there's a process in place and you're moving throughout that statute and different having different aspects of the statute in place, then, then it's constitutionally okay. Because I, I think, uh, and to speak to kind of the, the line of questioning that you have, Your Honor, is essentially this individual has a constitutional right to get into that courtroom and challenge these charges. And there, you may, it may be problematic as attorneys and legislators to say, medical professionals on the ground, this is the, the time period which is appropriate to get this person back to competency. Well, they also have a constitutional right not to have their liberty uh, deprived without trial unless there's some finding <clears throat> usually understood to be dangerous to the community or a risk of flight, neither of which has been made in this case, right? He, uh, Mr. David, uh, Mr. Carr had bond and didn't violate the bond. So, yeah, there's yes, that constitutional right. You have to have a reason to lock someone up. Yes, sir. And I think once you, the intent of the statute is once that report comes back, um, then you're moving to subparagraph E and the different um, processes so, that are in place. So there. in this case, for example, you would want us to say 
The statute allows three months at the hospital. It doesn't say how much time to get there and back, um, so he loses. But he's already apparently been incarcerated for somewhere in the neighborhood of, well, longer than any of the federal cases because it's more than four months. Maybe it's a little over four months or more than that. So what does he have to do? Does he have to file a writ of habeas corpus challenging his incarceration? What if he doesn't get back to your court for another three months? He still loses? No, I, 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 I wouldn't characterize it that way. I, I think the, the greater the concern that the court should consider is if individuals are, are left out as the situation that applies to, to Mr. Carr, the issue would be that there's not, absolutely nothing that you can do with this individual because if they've been found to be incompetent, you can't arraign this individual. If they revoke bond, you can't have a bond hearing. There's no sort of hearing that you could have because they've been found by the court to be incompetent. So the only thing, the only statutory structure that makes sense is to place them into the custody of the department to try to restore them. And then uh, reports would come back and the court would have, um, would just es essentially um, submit orders to, to bring that individual back and we'd have hearing either go to trial or we would go on to you uh, could require him as happens in Georgia with nonviolent offenders <coughs> to be evaluated in an outpatient setting right the statutory scheme allows that for nonviolent offenders okay. which is which is as as the court uh, stated is much broader than the federal uh, counterpart they're going to lock up nonviolent offenders and violent offenders alike, as the case law shows. But only for four months. But only for four months, as laid out in, in that statute. And again, the, the position, sorry. So how does Mr. Carr make sure that he's not held indefinitely? Well, the, the extended period of his um, time with the department at this point has been based on this appeal. Why is that? Because if, the, if, this appeal, if this appeal superseded the trial court's judgment, then I would understand it to supersede the entire trial court's order, which would mean that he should be allowed released on bond again. The only thing that, that took away his bond was the trial court order, right? That, that is correct. Uh, but once this, once this issue was raised, once this issue came to this court, the trial court, as um, Appley's position that the trial court no longer had jurisdiction over any other matter. Well, okay. I mean, it, either the order disappeared because it's on appeal, in which case Mr. Carr should be out on bond with no finding um, effective from the order, or the order didn't, it didn't disappear, as it sounds like it was treated, so he got transferred to the hospital to be evaluated, in which case we just uh, assume that the order was effective till this court rules. Are you saying he's just going to sit there for however long it takes a court to rule? Unfortunately so. Um, it, what, what jurisdiction would the court have when the Supreme Court is considering the ultimate issue and the constitutionality of the statutory structure that's been in place to put him there? And as far as due process issues, um, as the court noted with equal protection, um, the only classes that have been created here is essentially an individual that's been released and put out on bond. And um, that would be a, a, um, a lower standard, the rational basis standard, which essentially would be as long as uh, there are two legitimate concerns that the, the state would have in placing him in 
taken uh, essentially placing him through this process and that would be to try to restore him and also to uh, uh, public safety. So, um, Your Honors, I'm, so, I'm at- So I just wanna be sure, you, you are saying that um, Mr. Carr is going to be held in the hospital. The trial court's order saying evaluate him, I mean, the trial court's order said evaluate him then return him for a hearing. And you're treating half of that order as effective, evaluate him and the other half return him and proceed with the case as ineffective? Your Honor, I, I think if there was a recommendation from the hospital that they would like to maintain this individual and continue to work with him and restore him to competency, I think that would be the only reason that he would stay there. The, the ultimate question as to um, whether he would just remain indefinitely in, uh, in the department's custody being treated once he's been found to be incompetent and cannot be restored, I, I can't imagine a situation where the, the trial court wouldn't put a, an order in place to bring this individual back to um, our circuit and to deal with this case in whatever way that we can. It just, it, it's so fact specific. I, I guess at that point, if he cannot be restored to competency, then we're looking at moving to subsection E, the um, civil commitment hearings at that point. I, I, don't, I don't see anyone inter interpreting 177-130 as uh, once you get someone found to be incompetent and placed in the, into the department's custody, that um, they're there indefinitely and you just get to, get to throw away the key. I, I don't think anybody would interpret that statute and I don't think any officer of the court would believe that was their obligation. And as a prosecutor, the only obligation is justice. And to get that individual back would be the, the focus of not only the trial court, but uh, Mr. Carr's attorney as well as, as well as the state. Do you know if the department has made any, any type of report to the trial court? Yes, I, I believe that uh, there was a report um, done within the last couple of weeks. And um, I, I think the, the facts of that were they, were they were looking to work with Mr. Carr for um, a, an additional time period. And Your Honors, if I could just briefly um, deal with the, the timeliness issue and the manner in which this um, constitutional challenge was raised. Uh, the state believes there, there are issues. The, the initial competency evaluation from Dr. Perry um, came on or about March 5th of uh, 2017. There was not a constitutional challenge to uh, the constitutionality of 177-130 until it was done in writing by uh, the Public Defender's Office on 27 April of 2017. And the only challenge <coughs> to the constitutionality of the statute were in, in vague and not non-specific terms, essentially saying that the uh, defendant was deprived of due process and equal protection and challenging the entire statute as a whole, as opposed to um, challenging a very specific portion of it, which uh, maybe once the in incompetency evaluation was done and it was found and it was sent to the department without a hearing. That was not done initially. And um, it's the appellee's position that uh, this court should give more guidance on what would be required as far as the, the timeliness of raising this challenge and the specific specificity that must be raised to properly um, challenge, challenge the, um, the statute under the Constitution. Again, thank you, Your Honors, for having us here today, and I appreciate your time and your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Fuller.
Ms. Connell, anything further for the uh, uh, appellate? Yes, Your Honor. I'd at least like to um, correct the record. The appellee stated that the report from the department to the trial court, it has occurred since this case has been docketed. I believe we received it in October. The 19th is the day that stands out to me, but I could be off by a few days. That report found that Mr. Carr was incompetent, unlikely to be restored to competency in the foreseeable future due to his in low intellectual <coughs> functioning. They did further provide um, information related to his need for uh, care because of his inability to care for himself and they were interested in seeking inpatient solely because they didn't have an outpatient facility available. That report could be supplemented to this court if it were necessary, but it is important that the court is familiar with that. I think it's also important to notice the dis differences between the federal and the um, Georgia statute insofar as the federal statute does not have the department, the evaluating department involved in the first step. OCGA 177-130 subsection B1 was added to the Georgia competency statute in 2011, and it provides that now that the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities is to conduct the initial evaluation and where they are to make an assessment about the individual's competency and make recommendations as to restoration. However, the recommendations are not considered because of the mandatory language of 177 subsection C. A distinction in 4241 is that the attorney general or its agencies are not involved in the initial evaluation. The statute just authorizes psychologists or psychiatrists to perform the evaluation. And the case law seems to place emphasis on the fact that the attorney general and their authorities need to have the ability to evaluate the individual and that they have not had that ability prior to the commitment. That goes to the purpose of the commitment and the fact that Georgia distinguishes and provides outpatient also further demonstrates the ability of the outpatient evaluation to provide the necessary information. Can I ask, so you say in a report said Mr. Carr is incompetent and unlikely to be restored. Under the statute, does that kick you over to to subparagraph E and there's supposed to be a hearing? Yes, a civil commitment hearing should take place within 45 days. 45 days has expired and we have not had a civil commitment hearing. And do you know the reason for that? Not expressly, Your Honor, no. Um, for the reasons stated here today and stated in my brief, we are asking that you find OCGA 177-130 unconstitutional as it violates due process and equal protection to all individuals and to Mr. Carr. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Ms. Connell. Thank you, Mr. Fuller. Well argued. And uh, please be safe as you go home. And uh, we appreciate your arguments. Uh, Judge Modi, a, a pleasure to have you in court also. And uh, thank you for being with us.